Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn more about what we do, you can head over to officehours.global. And our first hour is where we answer your questions on media and virtual events. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be talking about business and how to start the next steps and some of the pitfalls that you would want to avoid. And for our producers that are watching, go ahead and submit your questions. That'll give our panelists plenty of time to answer them. And you know what, Mitchell? I think it's time to start this party. Let's go. Let's get it started. Thank you, Liberty, and good morning. Our first question in from Andy Carluccio in San Francisco, California. Andy asks, anyone from Office Hours planning to attend or cover ISE 2023 in January? Guy. This is not one that I plan on attending, but nobody else raised their hand. So I just wanted to bring up what it actually is. It looks like it's Integrated Sir, um, integrated Systems Europe. So I had to look up some of our favorite vendors. It looks like the European version of an IBC, but more kind of like a Infocom slash um, NAB rolled into one. So here's the Blackmagic booth. And then you can see Barco, Focal, Sony. Um, let's see if we go this way. You can see Samsung's just huge. So maybe it's like a CES kind of all rolled into one. So Crestron, it's a huge show. So uh, I'd love to go, but Barcelona's a little bit far to go travel when we have CES, Infocom, and NAB around the corner. But it'd be great if somebody from our group could, uh, could dive in. That would be great. And if you are planning to attend, let us know in the comments below. We might be able to figure some um, on the on the street reporting, maybe something like that. Next question. From Guy Cochran in Seattle, USA, and here on our panel, anyone from Office Hours planning to attend or cover CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, 2023 in January? Jason. Ooh, me, 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 me. Yeah, I'll be there. Oh, awesome. What are you, what are you looking forward to? I've I've been enough that it's really just a matter of kind of getting a, a sense of the industry writ large. Um, CES is so gigantic that it, it's impossible to to cover in any kind of traditional sense. But yeah, I I really like it. I enjoy the like the the live lately they've been over the past number of years the live activation so when they have um folks on and the engagement with the audience especially when you know when the influencers come on and share their insights so I like how they have integrated a lot of the influencers into product demos and just building that bridge because it is the consumer electronics show guy yeah, I registered to attend back in October, and if you haven't registered, the, there's now a fee because it's not it's not free anymore. So I tried to put the word out a couple months ago in October when uh, the registration was still free, but now it's uh, I think it's a hundred bucks or five, it'll go up to five hundred. I paid five hundred one year to go. It's a it's an awesome show, especially when you want to see just the latest in tech. In fact, a lot of the stuff that you see is two to three years out. It's it's like vendor showcases of technology. Uh, some of the wearables that I saw back in 2016 hit the scene. That's where I first saw the uh, Oculus Rift. That was like one of the biggest ones uh, that made a, a, a big splash. In fact, uh, people are going to rush the door uh, to get into that one. And luckily, because I've been to NAB and, and Exhibitor so much, the Las Vegas conventions that I knew the side entrance to go into. So I was able to get one of the first demos. So that's that's really cool when you can go in there and and see stuff for the first time. So I'm looking forward to seeing those 8K TVs and that Sony Crystal so last year, or two, I don't remember what year it was, 20, 2020, the beginning of the pandemic, 
uh, Sony had their crystal uh, LED wall, and then they had a uh, uh, Unreal Engine with the Ghostbusters car, and they were moving in real time on a big dolly track. And it was so cool to see that, and uh, the technology was just blowing my mind. That was just at the at the beginning of it all. So again, you see stuff that's a few years out. So it's it's a great show to attend. Hopefully, somebody. I don't know. Maybe I'll bunk up with Jason. Hey, Jason, you already got your room booked. <laughs> 2500 bucks, man. <laughs> Ed Mitchell? Yeah, I think a second hour a guy on secret entrances to CES would be in order. I would go in the South Hall, but I don't even know if you can go in that way anymore. Next question. Oh, sorry, guy. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it, it's not really a secret entrance. Where the so the vendors all stick their stuff and their their uh, crates out in the parking lot. So between Central and South, there's a walkway that you can go across. And if you know how to get over there, uh, there's where you could before it opens, you can slip down the sideway. There's like a a breezeway in between the two buildings. So that's that's the secret. You don't have to have a second hour. We can just there you go. The secret's out. Okay. <laughs> A real bonus there. Next question coming in from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. Does the panel have any recommendations specifically for a reliable portable communication radio device not using cellular or Internet for emergency use that is long range? Buy once, cry once, if possible, please. Thanks. John. Yeah, this is a tough one. I'm a ham guy. So there's FRS, which is the low end, but that's only half a mile or so, and then Above that, you have GMRS, but you need a license for that, and that's only about one to five miles. So you're, you're unless you go to ham, and then you're up one level above that. So, Mitch, what do you have to add? I, I think uh, Preto needs to uh, encourage all the hams to show up, uh, as he's an extra special, or anything with Motorola written on it probably make it work. Next question. Next question in from T.J. Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What is the best way to normalize audio for several clips in Final Cut Pro? I've got several clips, and the audio level's volume differ greatly and want to have them at a consistent volume. Should I go outside Final Cut Pro? Go ahead, John. Yeah, I typically want to take care of audio before I'm bringing it into my NLE. Um, so using whatever audio um, um, editor that you choose, as long as you can normalize the audio there, you can edit it within the final cut to kind of match it. Uh, you can also at the end just export your timeline if you use logic and then kind of master the entire thing. So it all sounds very even as well if you want to kind of put a little polish touch to it. And Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with John. And the other thing is to round trip it in logic because it's all part of the same thing um, if you have the program. Uh, the other thing is uh, normalizing sometimes is a little misunderstood. I'm not saying TJ misunderstand it, but um, when you normalize something, generally you're affecting the uh, the peak values um, on the file uh, so that they don't go over a certain level, like minus 14 or minus 20, whatever your standards are. But it does not adjust the dynamics in the rest of the files. So it, it just sort of says, oh, this is too high. I'm going to bring that down. But it's not going to take stuff that's low and bring that up. You use a compressor, uh, sometimes a limiter to accomplish that. And Nigel. Yeah, so I'm not sure I would do this for broadcast, but I use Crumple, Crumple Pops Leveler uh, sometimes just to run everything through to try and get it all in roughly the right place, particularly for internal stuff or stuff that I'm doing for conferences. I'm not sure I'd do that for broadcast, but it's the fast way through for me. Nigel, say the name again. 
It's a company called Crumple Pop, and they have a number of uh, different tools. Leveler is one, and they have all sorts of uh, audio tools. They have denoisers and stuff and depoppers, and they they aren't brilliant, but if you're in a hurry, they're good enough. They work good enough. Mitchell? Yep, they're brilliant enough to have a great memorable, memorable name. Um, my uh, secret sauce, and some people would probably think this is controversial, but I like to use the Waves uh, L1 Ultra Maximizer. It It's supposed to be a, a, a limiter, but sometimes it just does a good job of making everything fit into a mix real well. And Roscoe shares in the chat, Levelator app, if already edited or recorded together. Next question. From Paul Perkowski from Gainesville, Florida. What is the most affordable and reliable hardware-based HDMI to NDI converter with HDMI pass-through? Guy? Yeah, I'd probably say the most reliable and the one that's super popular is uh, this one here. This is the uh, KiloView. Uh, the E2 is the one that you'll want. This one has um, the actual pass-through. So uh, you'll notice here the E2 is the one with HDMI. So that's the, that's the in, and then you've got the loop out, and these are... Uh, $449. Thanks, Guy. Next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. Would there be a standalone app for Mac OS that can create a music visualizer similar to the live stream block in Audio Hijack Pro? And if you want to know what that is, there's a link to that. Jason? Mm, um, check out Project M on GitHub. I will put a link in Mukana. Noah, or sorry, John? Yeah, I think uh, this can be easily achieved with the OBS or VMAX or any sort of, even with a, a Blackmagic switcher um, and just sending what title you want across as well. And Noah? I was going to mention, I think VLC also has a visualizer that you might test out and see if it works for your application. Next question. From Jack Cannon in Phoenix, Arizona. Jack asks, looking for recommendations for a 10 gigabyte ethernet to use with a Mac mini since I failed to get 10G when I first purchased. Any good reviews for the Sabrent? Let's see what Jason has to say. Sabrent has burned me exactly once and that was the last time I bought one. OWC's ProDoc has a 10G ethernet built in and I really like that. They also have a standalone 10G ethernet that I found to be pretty reliable. Noah? Until I upgraded to my studio, I did use the standalone OWC 10G, which worked fairly well for me over time. It's, I think, three years old now at this point. So I wonder if they have any new offerings, but OWC for sure. Next question. Next question in from Eric Price in Kansas City. Is the Flow 8 60 dB of gain sufficient to drive a Sure SM7B, at least on channels 1 and 2? Okay, so the Flow 8... That looks like, let's start with Noah. I'm I'm doing this off of memory, but I think it's 68 decibels that you need, so it may not be enough. And Mitchell? Yeah, I'm, I'm with Noah now. I knew it was close, so it may be, it may work okay. 60 dBs is a typical gain expect from a preamp, unless it's a, a high-end one, and then you're talking at least 100 decibels. But um, that's the way to go. And at SM7B, I believe it's a broadcast microphone. You are muted, Liberty. 
next question. Okay, next question in from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Is there a diagram of the current office hour signal and control flow? Thanks. Guy? Yeah, I don't know if there's a current one, but I don't think anything's changed since uh, Richard Lavery did the demo uh, a couple months ago. I think everything's still the same. Nothing's been upgraded, so it should be still there on YouTube. Uh, we can dig up that episode and put it in chat, and he's got some nice PowerPoint or not PowerPoint keynote slides that he put together, and you can walk through and see exactly how it's all put together. Next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. A U.S. Air Force white paper, circa 2008, speculated that the recruitment and enlistment process could someday be transposed to a virtual environment. Are there certain rituals or rites of passage that would lose their gravitas in a virtual world? Hmm. Noah. Yes. <laughs> That's the short answer. No, I, I think that um, just generally speaking, not specific to this Air Force situation that, you know, as things move to virtual, generally speaking, there will be some loss, right, in that conversion. Um, but generally speaking, there'll also be some uh, efficiency gains in other ways and things that we like to do better. Um, so it's not ever going to be a one-to-one -one translation per se, um, but I think it is ultimately you know, when, when things go digital, they also scale a lot faster and, and farther too. Nigel? So I think we all learn and communicate on a spectrum. And that spectrum can be very broad from very visual to very audible. And there are clearly some people who are going to be as effective for their style of learning and listening in a virtual environment. And there are going to be some people that aren't. And so I think it's there's going to be a mixture. The other thing I think that's really interesting, I read a book called, I think it was called Don't Trust Your Gut. I'll look it up. And there's a sense that lots of people have that they don't trust people till they've met them face to face. And the book is just full of examples of people who met people face to face and called it all wrong. So we do overemphasize how effective we are when we meet someone at telling whether they're uh, being truthful or not or being honest with us. But there's no doubt that many of us uh, still, particularly if we're slightly older, feel more comfortable engaging in a physical environment uh, because of the way that we learn and communicate. And so I think there's going to be both are going to be needed. So just to touch on that for a second, Nigel, because as I'm reading Douglas's question, that it's the like the camaraderie, the bonding. I'm sure that I've not gone through any military training at all. So I don't know if anyone on the panel has, but I read it as will some of that essence be lost? Does anyone else hear it like that? That's how I read it. Noah? Well, I will say in our own experience with office hours, I mean, we, we definitely had our connection with the team, um, but there was something different about being there in the desert together or being at Cinegear with Guy. Like there's those moments like almost solidified the buildup of us meeting regularly and hanging out and doing our thing, like seeing Nigel and seeing the team. Like it was just really cool to like um, put a, a real life 3D face to the person, the screen that I've been looking at for, you know, a year and a half, two years or whatever before that. So it's just a tangible thing that um, is still not quite being replicated yet. Nigel. Yeah, I was going to answer your question by uh, an example that happened on Office Hours over the last couple of weeks. So uh, there was the uh, Zoomtopia event and we all participated either virtually 
But there were some people who got to participate physically, and there was the picture of the dinner that they had. And I wonder how many of us looked at that picture and felt FOMO for not being <laughs> around that table. And, you know, I didn't need to be in the hall listening to the main tent. I didn't need to be in the breakouts. I could consume all of that. But there was definitely a missing part that I wanted to have been at that table in that conversation. That's a really great example. And I'm wondering if there, if that's not also being able to be replicated in the digital space, because that's essentially what we're here on office hours when people come, especially whether event planners or conference people, just like how can those elements be those one-to-one or those communal elements if there are ways to be intentional in making that in making that happen. Mitchell? Yeah, I agree with uh, what you're saying and what Nigel just said. And of course, every, what everybody's saying is that when I've had the pleasure of um, meeting some of the uh, members that I've uh, associated with here on office hours, like uh, Talalik and uh, Mark Giuliani. Um, it was it was almost a surreal experience to be with them, enjoying a meal and asking questions and sort of getting to know another aspect of them. Tends to be more personal because, you know, we do interact on a uh, uh, question-asking and answering basis, but uh, it was really fun, and it was neat to uh, neat to be able to do that. And speaking of all of that funness, I really like reading questions, and I would love if we had more of them. I wish I could do it personally with everybody that's a producer, but if I could pop out there and uh, tap you on the shoulder, I would say, please add your questions, and uh, we'll be happy to answer them. Thank you for that, Mitchell. Nigel? Yeah, I was just going to add two quick thoughts. First of all, um, when we went to office hour space, one of the interesting things was how tall people were or weren't. And you get no sense of the physical shape of somebody across the sink. So maybe that's good for some people. But I have to tell you that at least in my rather simplistic world, I'd go, well, he's taller and he's shorter. And it was just giving physical dimension to people was very interesting. The second thing I'd tell you is that I am generally a non-believer that this environment will replicate that dinner table and what happens in a free flow of conversation. I think this environment can absolutely replace uh, the way that uh, content is shared and communication happens and debate can happen. But there's a physical thing that happens when people are in a room together, half conversations, cross conversations. You listen to a conversation that, you, and you join in a conversation and you learn from that. And, and I, I don't see this platform yet with a model that replaces that. Very true. They, they're called like serendipitous moments where you just, they're just unplanned and they just happen being there in the moment. And to your previous point, Nigel, I remember meeting Tony Mobley in the flesh. He is much taller <laughs> than I expected. So I completely agree with you. Next question. Next question in from Paul Persikowski in Gainesville, Florida. Does anyone know of a web-based application for adding different overlay images to videos in bulk? Not one overlay per all, but the uh, customized overlay per each video. John? So I do this at work. Um, we have customized videos that we send out for people when they close a loan. Uh, we do this with Cloudinary. Uh, that allows us to stitch the information over using an API. And then we use Azure Media Services to encode and send the videos. Oh, thank you for that. Next question. Chad LaForge from uh, Columbia, Missouri. What apps would you recommend to document your signal and control flow? John? I use HDR gear and Excel. 
And and I guess just for a moment, for those who might not be aware of signal flow, Mitchell, do you want to describe that, define that for us? Um, I can't, but I can confirm that I do like <laughs> H2R, so sorry. <laughs> okay. Nigel? I use a piece of pen and a paper or a piece of paper and a pen. I, I have to tell you, I find all of those tools really maddening because I'm just not structured enough. So I get a piece of paper and I draw it out and I redraw it out and I change it and maybe I'm just old fashioned. Yes, and I'll take a stab at this unless, Guy, you can feel free to correct me, but just the the flow of the show, flow of your system, your workflow, and Nigel, just like you, I am good old-fashioned pen and paper because for some reason there's always a moment where, oh no, but we should add this. So I find I find that handy. Guy? Yeah, the one that I'll use is uh, OmniGraffle. People on our team are, have been using it for years, so they're really good at it. And it works on the iPad. Well, I think you have to pay extra, but it isn't a cheap app, that's for sure. Um, for cheap uh, H2R gears, one that I, because of the uh, specifics for our industry, it's nice to have. You know, it's some of the templates for like an ATEM, so that makes life a little faster. But yeah, with the iPad uh, 12.9 inch, I'll a lot of times just sketch something out roughly, and then before I actually go in and and make it pretty but most of the time it's just for my own needs so i don't need to make it pretty so but there is also lucid uh lucid chart is the other one that a lot of folks will use that we've seen some of the higher end really technical diagrams uh get used with yeah john folds in the chat said he put lucid uh sorry lucid chart in there as well noah yeah i was gonna say lucid chart and i started on that and then i switched to h2r gear over time um, but for me, the the backbone is still kind of an Excel spreadsheet. It's a Google Doc here um, that has all the routing for my carts and ins and outs. And so I could basically trace the signal here, do it on paper. And this is, also helps me when I physically um, put stuff together um, and, and route it all out in my cart. So, yeah. Awesome. And I see Joe said, can you post a link to old fashioned pencil and paper app? Next question. I'm sorry, that's too funny. Uh, Noah Sargent from Fullerton, California on the panel and uh, in Fullerton. Uh, is anyone a regular user of BR? Anyone on the panel use it regularly? I've used it on the occasion. Um, I'm in a VRXR group in Atlanta, and a lot of the women there are producing games. A lot of them are using it for training, like Annie Eaton has her company, Futurist, and they actually develop um, develop training for large corporations. So at, there are times when they, we're asked to test things. So I'll hop in every now and then, but it's definitely one of my 2023 20, goals, especially with our children's programming and helping to get more kids involved in XR and VR. Noah? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a regular, regular user, but I did buy my wife the Oculus Quest 2 about okay. a year and a half ago. Um, and so I occasionally grab it and use it. There's a new game that I've been that I just started playing, and um, I, I, it made me curious to see if our group has plugged into that or connected into that. But I guess not a lot yet. Next question from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. I'm trying to find a baby pin plug for the end of this stand. He has a link to it. Uh, the Pro Aim corner plug are just slightly the wrong size. Like, do we have anyone? Mitchell. I, I, I'm just going to interject. If you can't find it on B&H, it may not exist, but you could try 
Amazon. You could try Adorama. Um, you could, uh, there's a film company, um, film tools in, uh, LA. Um, some, th they would probably have it because they have those kind of hard to find gotcha stuff. Next question. From Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Missouri. Did anyone on the panel catch telematic collisions? What stood out to you the most about their Isadora Zoom ISO far play production? Did anyone catch that? I did not catch it. And I'd be very curious to see how all of that came together. And maybe, Chad, you might be able to share that in, if someone can share a link to that in the chat, and maybe we can all take a look at that. And maybe it'd be a great after-hours discussion, because that's some, that's some heavy use, <laughs> use of tools there. Next question. Next question from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Are there any recent white papers on how poor audio and video contribute to Zoom fatigue? Mitchell. Probably, but it's self-evident when you have a group of people in the room and one of them's falling asleep. Uh, it's, uh, it becomes uh, an experiment at that point that you're seeing the results of. Noah? I think I would pay for this because that data to me is a selling point for you know, the, the core services that I offer as a business. So to have some sort of A-B testing and some sort of um, official document and stating like, you know, you're... Um, you can last X number of hours with horrible audio versus, you know, X number of hours with high high quality audio video. That would be huge. John? After that first uh, paper came out from, I think it was Stanford, I think that Alex actually wrote a rebuttal on Twitter. I thought he said he was going to follow up with a longer piece, but Alex might have something available for you. But just think about a poor telephone call and how tired you get of trying to listen to somebody on the other side on a on a bad telephone call so it should be relatively evident so andy i've seen articles on it but actual research apart from what um what john just shared i have not and seeing as zoom has really you know the pandemic is what helped it to to take off the way that it it has i would think that it would take a little bit of time for research just understanding the the research cycle um for something substantial let's put it that way for something substantial to come out so conducting interviews and all of that so that process that it takes uh guy yeah i put a link to that stanford article that was pretty controversial here in in our world because uh one of the things that they missed is is just high quality audio a lot of people just uh, uh they don't realize how much of a load that is after a few hours of listening to poor microphones that it's your brain just trying to decipher words and especially if it's a conference room with one of those notoriously uh horrible uh reflective rooms that just has one mic for nine people and uh, if it's you know some $99 mic or whatever they have in their telephone, it can be pretty brutal trying to hang on. So Alex did write something, I believe it was on Medium, and he was he said it was pretty much irresponsible for them to write that and release it as an organization of that caliber without doing further research. Uh, because you know for us doing this with the, like I have a prompter and I'm looking at you guys, and when I'm doing some of these meetings with folks in a 1080p meeting that have a high quality camera, uh, it's just like they're there because the prompter is a 17 inch uh and it's their 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 head is as big as it is in real life well some in gallery view your head's really small but in in a full-size uh active speaker it's it's like being there i could talk to somebody for hours and it's just like i was there in fact when i go drive to the office sometimes after i've been in a meeting that was uh 
first on Zoom and then I drove over there. It, it was just like my brain felt like I had been there with them already. So it's when you have high quality audio and high quality video, it's it is like being there. And I'm sure Google and some of these other guys that are coming out with the the next level of um, uh, teleconferencing, it's gonna it's gonna shock us how good it and how how good it can feel. And thanks for saying that too, guy. Of just the Stanford putting this public putting out this research and research really does take time so that they can actually validate this is the cause of XYZ and whatever the theories and the theses are behind it. So thanks for, for adding that. Next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California, what PC specs would be needed to match the capability of a Mac Mini M1? Nigel. I, I wanted to answer first so I could say it depends. And the answer is it, it depends on what you want to do with it. And, and, and that almost every PC from, you know, a B linked by Courtney or whatever they're called nowadays, all the way up to an I-9 super machine could be apply. Uh, I, I guess we're talking about more video-centric stuff. And if we're playing more video-centric stuff, then I think the real issue is not the CPU, but what CPU and graphics you use. And and if you're running a PC, then you've really got to think about, you know, uh, using NVIDIA, using a uh, Radeon, I nearly said ATI, the brand I took out of the market. Uh, Radeon, what technology are you using? Because that may be more important to the video production than the central CPUs. I see the panelists shaking their heads. Go ahead, John, in agreement. Yeah, uh, and it really comes down to what you're trying to do. It's easy to find a machine that's more powerful, uh, but it's going to come down to your use case and how you're going to leverage the equipment. A 3090 is going to be much more powerful than any sort of uh, graphics card that's a part of the M1 um, in you know power draw everything else like I have a 1300 watt power supply and leveraging a lot of it in my PC it's essentially a nice space heater for me in the winter. <laughs> John, yeah, the guys did a good job articulating that the power of the Apple is the is the performance per watt and that's those graphs that you see the Apple put up it, which is amazing and John John just said it well the. The 3090 outperforms anything that Apple has as far as graphics goes, but the, the performance per watt is where Apple's shining brightly. Next question. From Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts, asking, I enjoy watching movie credits and saw a new one, Visual Effects Data Wrangler. I can imagine what they do, but I'm curious if there is more to it. Mitchell? Data Wrangler, Pixel Pusher, um, these all come out of the category typically that is uh, said as DIT or D-I-T. And uh, that's the person that uh, basically takes all the chips, all the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the drives and um, consolidates them, validates them and transfers them to uh, wherever medium they have to be as quickly as possible because you just don't keep them on the same uh, solid state logic or whatever solid state uh um, chips that you normally record on. You got to make sure it lives someplace else as quickly as possible and uh, put them together. So they do a lot of transferring, a lot of uh, pixel wrangling, as the uh, suggestion suggests. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I think for this new position, um, this is something where you're collecting lens data because some of the lenses, there's like concave to them. So uh, in the higher end lenses, that that information is in there. So you got to capture that information, which usually if you have the right camera, it gets embedded in the metadata. But then there's other things uh, for VFX. There's LiDAR scans. Um, so it's a whole new world with VFX. So there's there's lots of other 
data to be wrangling than just the typical, uh, you know, grabbing the video and audio files. And Noah. Yeah, so visual effects is the department. And so within the department, Mitch and Guy just described two positions that fit within that department. Um, so DIT is um, basically the person who makes sure that the, the data is backed up on set. So they collect all the cards. Um, they have a redundant file system program that takes it and duplicates it um, to make it all clean and neat. And then what Guy just described, the data wrangler um, also basically takes, like he said, the the measurements, so like the camera height um, and then any sort of metadata that might be with that camera. Um, they also sometimes have a sphere for reflections, so they'll put that ball in camera um, to get a shot of that. Um, and they also, um, just like we have um, a card for color tones, right, like so we can match and, and do that, they have their own kind of version of that to basically translate all that data to the digital world. Another thing they might be using that person for um, is if they have like a second unit or even another additional unit that shoots uh, plates or extra shots to help for those visual effects elements. Next question. Next one in from Douglas Carmichael. Nigel, do you think tools like Zoom Spots, and there is a link to it, can bring some of that serendipity back to the virtual workplace? Nigel. So I only saw enough about Zoom Spots to, uh, on the, the main tent. Um, and I have to be say that I am on the cynical edge of that. Now, again, we're talking a spectrum of communications and there will no doubt be a chance for someone who finds themselves more comfortable in that virtual environment to achieve some of that serendipity that way. I don't think for most of us or most of the rest of us, or maybe it's just me, that is a thing that's that's going to be there. I mean, sometimes I put after hours on and listen to it in the background, but invariably, that's not how I function. I, I try and be present when I'm present. I think the bigger issue is nobody's really worked out what the future of work looks like in terms of a mixed hybrid environment. In the same way we, do, we talk about, well, what is a hybrid event? What's a digital first event? And we're trying to work out what those definitions means. I think the workplace and companies are going to have to make the same set of decisions um, about how they work and what works and what doesn't. Strangely enough, I think the right answer might be a separate device like your phone, uh, that allows you to, you know, a handset phone that allows you to engage in a sort of interactive spots type environment. But but I don't think anyone's put in enough work or enough thinking yet to know how that really would apply. How does it apply in open offices? How does it apply in cubes? There are so many questions that I think Zoom, who's doing such incredible work, could really bring some definition and thinking to that place. This tool as it stands doesn't cut it for me. And for those who may be unaware of what a Zoom spot is, just looking at the the link that was shared, it looks like it's a it's almost like a virtual co-working space. Is that accurate, Nigel? What they are? What yeah, they're... I mean, it, it's like being in. To me, at least, it looked like being in office hours, uh, after hours that you put after hours on and you leave it there. And you know, if if a conversation happens, you want to engage in, you stop what you're doing and you engage. Um, and you know, it's it's like the digital water cooler. At least that's how it it, it occurred to me. And uh, so that that's the I think what they're trying to do is solve for that problem. And that's coming in twenty twenty three, John. Yeah, my biggest uh, issue when we kind of all went remote uh, the first time was um, 
how your days just kind of got booked up. And I think this is their answer to that is like, Hey, just catch me in my, in the zoom spot. We can have a five minute conversation versus the 15 minute meetings that are just kind of back to back all day. That was the real grind versus anything else I really experienced uh, when the pandemic first started. Next question. From Eric Price in Kansas City. Uh, so I did my first ever multi-cam edit and resolve this weekend. Why have y'all been keeping this wizardry a secret? Mitchell? It gets even more uh, less secretive when we tell you that if you're using a uh, an ATEM Mini Extreme ISO, that if you record, you end up with separate uh, files that when placed in resolve, they go on the timeline in the uh, correct spots. So all you have to do is just pick the camera you want in the shot. But the idea of multi-camera um, editing has been around for a while. You can probably find it in uh, Final Cut and certainly in Premiere. Um, it's, a, it's a handy little device. Usually you can just switch it live with one little keystroke. He's probably yeah, referring to the, the ease of use in Resolve. Noah? Yeah, I have to agree with everything Mitch just said. Um, I started on Final Cut 6 and did multi-cam there and then I've been on Premiere reluctantly, even with all the bugs and stuff. And so we're considering switching over to DaVinci Resolve now as well. And I'm glad it's been working well for you. And John. First of all, Eric is our chef for OH Space Garage Rocketeers and hope to have him back out here again. And uh, yeah, Black, you know, this is amazing. Resolve is amazing because they have a free version. And I used Premiere for years and years and years and got tired of it crashing on me and went to the free version. Uh, and then... I through my camera acquisitions, I get you get a free version of the studio version of, of Resolve. I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. It's only crashed once in two years. So wow. uh, I, I use it almost every other day or so. And Mitchell. Yeah, I just want to amplify what's being said here and make a bold prediction. Where's the drum sounds? Um, that you know, I've used all of them. I've used Avid and Premiere and Media One Hundred going way back and programs like that. I really honestly think that the feature set and the integration into the Blackmagic ecosystem is going to make Resolve uh, the go-to editing system. The features are all there. It's just not quite there yet. But when it gets there, it's going to be the thing. Next question. From Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. About a year ago, Noah did a video on the XMAC mini server. Would you use that same box for a Zoom ISO system or put the deck link in a separate box? Noah? Great question. Um, I thought it was the best tool at the time, um, and I built two boxes. Um, you can see them on one of my YouTube channels. It's Hacking Hollywood. Um, but yeah, so the X Mac mini server has two slots for um, two different cards. Um, but if I was to rebuild it, which I have for my, my second card, I did rebuild that whole system with the, um, it's just the same company, which is uh, Sonnet, and it has a side-by-side uh, Mac mini rack. So you can actually do two of them and it's $200 instead of $800. Um, and then I would do a separate um, Sonic. No, it's a, it's basically a Thunderbolt enclosure. So um, I have two of those as well. So I, I would basically build it in that second system. What I found is um, the X max mini server was kind of a pain in the butt to maintenance. And um, when you power on and off the unit, um, the, there's a spring that's built in and that spring was failing on me. And so uh, occasionally I would have to spend 45 minutes tearing up apart that box to, to have to rebuild it. And so I found the, the dual unit, you know, side by side worked much better. Nice. Next question. 
From Brett Bilal in Appleton, Wisconsin, I love my Focusrite Scarlett 2i2 audio interface, but wish it had a mute function in either software or hardware. Is there a physical mute button that the panel can recommend for connecting to XLR mics with 48 volts? I'm using a Stellar X2 microphone. Go ahead, Mitchell. Mute? Somebody say mute. I love muting. In fact, I've invested quite a bit in it. Um, here's the deal. Um, if you can wait just a little bit longer, Brett, um, Tom Ferguson and a, uh, a an August crew are picking up a uh, list of good, better, best of everything. I think he calls it the tech tackle. So if you can wait a few more weeks, I think you'll see a lot of um, examples. Everything from the top of the line, here it comes. I've done it on every show. Uh, Model 205 from Studio Tech, which has the mute, also has a preamp in it. Also has Dante and also has the ability to uh, mix all the video uh, audio sources that are coming into your show. But other people use roles to accomplish this. Um, and there's a number of uh, uh, hardware, software devices out there. Uh, one of them is called Mute Me Mark II. Don't get the Mark I. And um, I think John Idelson was uh, demonstrating another uh, software uh, device. They're all pretty cool. Oh, X, uh, X keys can be programmed to do it also. So... You'll see our list uh, when the Tech Tackle finishes the ABC of audio. Next question. Next question coming in from Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California. What do you envision as far as future tech for video meetings? Nigel? So uh, about 10 years ago, I worked at a company that had an HP telepresence room. And I know some of you may have seen the Cisco ones. And effectively, you walked into a a room, there was half a table in front of you, so it was circular and then cut off. And then there were four large monitors of five, maybe five. And then opposite each of those monitors was a chair. And when you connected to the other side, the table completed to a circle. And for each person in the physical, there could be a person in the virtual. And each one of you had your own mic. Each one of you had your own camera. Each one of you had the ability to share. That, to me, was the closest I've ever come to creating what we want in terms of this uh, physical presence with a virtual element. Because the reality is you could have those serendipitous conversations because you could see the body language, not just the face of the other person. So if someone twitched, you could say, well, why did you twitch? Now, that's really hard for most people to create in their office. But but I think it's a matter of time before the screen technology gets to the point where, you know, we can all afford a big wraparound screen or, or we start to build telepresence rooms that allows for that type of conversation. And I think that that technology jump will fix some of this physical presence. I don't think for everybody it will replace the physical presence, but, but we've got to accept that when we just have a 20, 24-inch monitor, whatever it is, most people don't have monitors that big on their desks. They're, they're getting to see head and shoulders. They're not going to see the physical body. And once we can recreate that sort of telepresence environment, I think it will help everybody. Noah? That's a fun vision of the future for sure. For me, I think the technology behind everything we do, whether it's cameras and lighting and um, audio, obviously it's all moving towards a Dante, you know, digital controlled space where we can re remotely control stuff for other people, which would be great. Um, I would love to see some sort of upgraded technology around screens. 
um, specifically like looking at this teleprompter, looking at what's in front of me to go from the 2D aspect of it to some sort of 3D uh, space. And then also the thought of like having a sensor or some sort of lens built in behind the glass, right? And having that, obviously we do it through that reflection, but to have um, some sort of future technology that allows us to see three-dimensional off of a teleprompter, like, or some sort of device that allows us to keep looking at the camera, yet also see in kind of like three dimensions. I think that would be a really cool um, technology. And then what what I would also love to see is just a, a good standardized way of um, good video across um, the masses, essentially, right? Because like our group of people really love <laughs> a high quality stuff, but not everybody has that same respect for it. Guy? Yeah, I think we got a glimpse of some of this stuff when we were at Zoomtopia and seeing these monitors with individuals in them turned sideways. That was pretty neat to actually make it feel like the person was there. The latency, even though they were just, they were on-prem, they were, so Andy came in through a studio that was built at the trade show. So he was just a couple hundred feet away from us, but he was on screen. So it felt like he was a part of the online audience, so he didn't feel like he was in the room, but you still kind of got the sense like we were all together. So it was an, an interesting feel. Um, I've had an opportunity to tour, uh, they call it Joint Lewis uh, McCord, which is a military installation here and go to the Army Ranger training facility. And we got to talk to some folks in Iraq and uh, real time, they're using hardware encoders. Um, I mean, this is military, so they got the big bucks and uh, they had um, uh, microphones all over the place. They had PTZ cameras, but then the latency to talk to Iraq because it's just glass to glass, um, it was super fast, super super great encoding. So I think that's the future: is fiber with powerful encoders with some kind of hologram TV. I was just looking at one that uh, was at CES a couple of years ago. This is one from the Looking Glass factory, and they make sixty-five inch eight K panels. So something like that would. Uh, you know, make it have that depth as well. And we saw some of this stuff at Infocom as well. And it was, it was pretty cool. In fact, uh, I couldn't screen share it, but I've screenshot it before there. Uh, Proto, I think is the name of the company where uh, it, it looks like a box that they've somehow given it some depth. So we were on site able to see people going in, everybody wanted to go into it and uh, everybody else could see on the outside what it looked like. And it was jaw dropping. I mean, it looks like, cause it's full size. It's the same size as a person. So when you're walking by, you're like, is that person in there? And especially since they wave at you and stuff, it, cause they can see you. So they wave at you and it's like, oh wow, they see me. Was, so they had a camera that was facing the other direction. So you can see who's walking and get the view from the monitor. So it's, it's pretty cool stuff. I'll put a link if I can find that in the I'd say that mine is a combination, a little bit of, I like how you said that, Nigel, like the telepresence, but the use case being more around like family meetings or family um, family conversations or events. My parents are, are older and as the aging population, I remember during COVID that for my mom to like log on to watch church, she would, you know, in Toronto, call me in Atlanta and I'd have to like navigate and walk her through. So as one who grew up in like the Star Trek era, just seeing some of that technology, whether it be something like uh, a much 
easier goggle or something. And I know we've we've got VR and we kind of spoke about that earlier, but something that would be just such an ease of use for uh, our aging population for them to use so that they like we can see them and they can see us. So uh, a mix of the the telepresence idea and the the VR, but like goggles just being much more seamless. So that's that's the use case. I don't know what it necessarily the tech actually looks like, but that's um that's what I envision as we see our, our boomers getting older and older. Next question. I'm getting older. Uh, Douglas Carmichael here with a question. Disney Research made an AI tool that can change an actor's age. It's a long link to it there. Could you see more VFX houses moving back to the make side of the make or buy continuum? Mitchell. Um, I'm going to try to parse that last part of the question. Uh, Make or buy. I think what might be referring to is selling a process um, as a, uh, a subcontractor versus having it in the house. Uh, but I want to hire or buy whoever did the uh, Indiana Jones uh, de-aging for the Indiana Jones 5 that's coming out. If you look at the trailer, it's gorgeous. It's it's amazing what it's doing. John? Yeah, so make or buy or build versus buy is what we usually refer to it as is uh, designing your own software versus buying something off the shelves. If you are going to specialize into a workflow, want to move very fast, don't want to worry about what someone else has built, that's when you make that. So for Disney, if it makes sense for someone to design that so they can work faster, then that's where you're going to kind of execute on that. Next question. Noah Sargent, Fullerton, California, asks, what tech are you looking forward to in 2023? Nigel? Okay, so I, I do iPads every other year. So I'm looking forward uh, to the uh, the Pro with the uh, M3 chip in it. And uh, I'm fascinated to know what's going to happen with the Mini. So the Mini seems to be hanging out there with the M1. It needs to move to the M2 or even the M3. And I'd, it, I'd be really interested in that as well. After that, I've been told I'm not allowed to look at anything else. <laughs> Guy. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, some of the other manufacturers step up and uh, do something to compete with uh, Sony's FR7 because this thing's ten grand, and some people just started getting it. Uh, so it's it's hitting it's hitting the shelves, and uh, the one limitation is the lensing. And so I'm hoping somebody will build something, maybe even Micro Four Thirds, that has some some kind of lens that still can zoom in, uh, whether it be physically. But yeah, I, I would love to see in 2023 some kind of competitor to the uh, Sony FR7 camera. And Mitchell. And uh, I'm looking for the new Mac Pro whenever it comes. Oh, I shouldn't say it in front of my old Mac Pro because if it gets a window when I'm thinking, it might cease to work. Don't do it, Mitchell. It, it that That's a thing. That's a thing. Next question. From Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida, will Zoom ever add an LUFS meter? Anyone working on a Zoom app for LUFS? That would be handy. Like, thankfully, we have our VLM meters here. But for those that don't have that resource, that would be something that could definitely help with their workflow. Let's see what Guy has to say. Yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic, Jonas and I were trying to build this. We bought the domain name meetingmeters.com and we started to build it out. We were going to do it in the cloud and it was going to be this fantastic thing. And we had googly eyes because when we made the Excel spreadsheet, we're like, wow, we're going to make, we actually 
went through a, a process where we learned a ton because we used something called AWS auto scaling. So something good came out of this, but the bad part was when we took it to somebody that could help us out, they were like, um, what about the privacy concerns of your instance being inside of somebody's meeting, especially if it's government or some kind of uh, public corporation that's about to do an SEC thing where, you know, any of that that knowledge can come back to haunt you. So having an instance in a room that can listen, because we could hear the meeting, you know, you log into that instance, you can listen to everything. So there was some major privacy concerns. So whoever does it, um, they, they get, they'll have to figure out a way to alleviate those privacy concerns. So a meter is listening. <laughs> so who wants something listening in your meeting if it's, uh, you know, confidential information? It was definitely handy. I used it a couple of times. Next question, uh, sorry, John. If you notice the, the last two times that Andy's been on here, I've specifically asked him if they were going to put meters or Fenwick, the Fenwick framer inside of the production version or the studio version of Zoom. And he just kind of giggles and laughs. So I, I expect they'll eventually put it in. Copy that. Mitchell? I think we're a little spoiled here because, uh, you know, Hasmuk uh, puts a meter in, which we have right here with us. And uh, in after hours and in the breakout rooms, Brandon um, has built a meter that appears there. So we're kind of taking it for granted, but it definitely is helpful because I was in a meeting with somebody the other day on a regular Zoom call and they were kind of loud and I was looking for the WLM meter, which wasn't there. And uh, wouldn't it be great if they could just get a WLM meter to work as an app inside Waves or Zoom? And Noah. I was just going to vamp off of Guy's thought. Um, what if there is some way to take the audio and then put it through some sort of transitional filter that like, basically makes it unlegible? Distorts or, it? Yeah, distorts it. Yeah, exactly. But it keeps the same uh, audio level property, so you can still get a LUFS reading. But as far as like um, the clarity, right, a human or even a robot can de decipher that um communication right so i don't know if that's a possibility or if if andy if y'all have thought of anything like that or doing anything like that but that would be cool thank you are muted in the video all right next question from craig mcfarlane in boston massachusetts has anyone tried out Streamyard's webinar feature at top tier 10k viewers 15 participants and a green room Yeah, it's uh, it's so new. Noah, why don't you give us a shot? Well, the video that was linked looks like it's only five days old. Um, so I haven't personally seen or used it. Um, I know a few YouTubers that use StreamYard as the regular service that you know they use for all their live streams. So um, as far as like a professional tool, I don't I don't really know too many people who are making besides YouTube money making um, professional money charging clients using StreamYard. So we'll see we'll see what comes from it. I've got access to StreamYards and I haven't tried it yet, but this is definitely encouraging so I can test it out and come back to the community to see how that works. But it does show that StreamYards, especially after they had the uh, the acquisition or the, yeah, the acquisition last year, year before, that they are looking for ways to take more and more of that market share. So it'll be interesting to see how that fares in the next year or so. Next question. From Douglas Carmichael, many public venues, arenas, stadiums, for example, are adding sensory refuges for those on the autism spectrum or with related conditions. Could you see said spaces even making their way into professional environments? 
the short answer is yes. Yes, yes. As, as COVID, <laughs> to say that, and how it Im- has impacted us um, severely and our mental health and wellness and wellness being even of a greater concern. And someone mentioned earlier about the just the future of work. And these are some of those elements that I see as being staples or being something that's highly considered um, in that space. I can definitely see it being used in a professional environment. Next question. Next question coming in from Chris Wider, Lafayette, Indiana. I'm trying to find something like the innovative corner plug with baby pin for Apollo and deploy four carts to adapt a hollow pipe mast to a baby pin for the LSP SB column stand. It looks like we'll start with Noah. Okay, so first thing I would do is definitely contact the manufacturer of that stand that you're looking specifically for to see what accessories they have. Um, secondly, there's B&H. They might have some cross um, knowledge, even, you know, DVE store might have some cross knowledge of products that might work. But the, pr- the problem is if it's not a standard size, um, then you're going to have to manufacture something. So whether you have a lathe or some sort of um, way of basically taking a cylindrical um, shape and then basically um, uh, scratching it or, you know, shaping it down to the size that you need. Um, it's going to be a, definitely a, a fun project. And I would, I would start with some sort of wood or, or something that you can um, do at a low cost that's easier to manufacture than metal and then work your way up to metal, metal over time. Next question. Douglas Carmichael is in with a question. Liberty, you mentioned how a simple-to-use telepresence device could benefit the senior population. Could you see said technology also helping in reducing caregiver stress for those caring for seniors with dementia, Alzheimer's, or related conditions? I definitely can see something like that used being used. The target audience being seniors and just the care of them in whatever way that could be, whether it be even medical, so telehealth, and making that much easier for, for doctors or wellness people to be able to check in and see the totality of the individual. So I can I can highly see that. Next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama. I'm attempting to do a hybrid conference through Zoom. Should I use webinar events or regular Zoom? We'll need to break out rooms and question voting. What do you recommend? Go ahead, Guy. If you want to use webinar, the only way to get the breakout rooms with within or to get backstage, essentially, so you can have uh, guests come in and not immediately pop onto the stage. Uh, so you want to use Zoom events, and that will be the $99 license. Uh, a couple of us have. Uh, Greg Gibson has a Zoom events license. I have one. I'm letting uh, Josh Kaufman play with it if you want. Depending on how close your event is, I wouldn't recommend diving into this because it can. There are some gotchas. You you need you must do some preliminary um, uh, run throughs and make sure that it's going to work fully. Uh, Zoomtopia was done with Zoom events, so we know that it can be um, something that's that handles millions of people. So it it is it is a working model. It's just the knowledge. You know, that's the team that put that on. So and there's uh, you know a couple dozen people working on that, and they give themselves a year of planning so if it's a couple weeks away i would say just go webinar and you're not going to get backstage uh, or you're not going to get breakout rooms unless you push a meeting into a webinar and people like Jonas and greg are experts at this so i would reach out to those guys if you're not familiar with it or just use their license because there's some 1080p stuff to get that account so there's a lot more to it so i would reach out to somebody that's done it before or kick your 
you're meeting over to a service uh, provider that can handle it all for you. Testing, testing, testing is always uh, before an event, always helpful. Well, thank you so much, producers, for taking us to the top of the hour with your questions as we prepare to make this transition so that we can get into and dive into business and what it takes to get started, what it takes. Some of the, If you're thinking about, I think it was last week during the show, there was even a question around like the side hustle and what if someone wanted to start a side hustle and what that looks like. So today we'll go through from from start to to finish of what it means to first of all the different types of businesses that there are out there so that we can make sure that we speak to that specifically for you um and a full disclaimer that please check your your local area check your the country where you are for their rules and regulations, typically uh, there is a uh, a small business or a business website, a government-run website where they will list out the things that you do need, uh, somewhat of a checklist to register um, business. But I think what would really help is even just starting the conversation by defining what a business is and then going from there because we have a great panel of people who have all started a business and also grown a business as well. And who would like to start us off in this conversation, Jason? All right, sure. I'll, I'll get this started. Um, I started Nerds Limited just out of college instead of getting a job, and it is still my only form of income, and it still kind of amazes me that it, it continues to work. So um, in a nutshell, I'm going to give as generic uh, an answer as I can think of. Um, the benefit of incorporating is that you have um, at least some sense of what's called a corporate veil, which means that you are uh, not individually – your individual assets are not liable um, for seizure if you were to be sued. So there are – many different ways to incorporate, but that that in general answers the why. Um, for the most part, LLCs are kind of the, the way this is done unless you have very specific reasons to need an S Corp or a C Corp. And um, New Mexico is extremely easy, for example. Um, it's a $50 money order and two sheets of paper um, to start a, an LLC. After that, you take what you get from the state and give it to the IRS and say, hi, I'd like an EIN, uh, an employer ID, and um, take that and then in turn take both of those sheets of paper and give them to your bank and say, hi, I'd like a corporate bank account. Because of course, you it, it is much more difficult to sue a person if you have never paid a person and instead have paid a business. The way to do that is with a, a corporate bank account. And uh, I'm sorry, I have to jump off for this hour, but I, I hope that hope that helps get you started, Liberty. That's a, that's a great start. Thank you for that, Jason. Noah? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. I, I think um, for myself, I, I worked for other people the first 10 years of my career, and then I started developing my own business. And um, looking back at it, I had entrepreneurial tendencies, <laughs> for lack of a better phrase, where I was a self-starter and I, you know, I got was able to bring people together and, and also think um, – 
the big picture instead of just the details on stuff. And so I think that naturally drew me to starting my own business. Um, and I, I, I continue to have this issue and it's the fear of missing information, right? So I fear what I don't know um, because I haven't learned it yet or grown in it. And so um, that's where this kind of uh, idea for today's topic came from is like, let's get back to the basics. Let's make sure that we cover and talk about, um, you know, the fundamentals of, of business and what we're doing today, which is awesome. Um, so I think we're naturally drawn to, if you're like me, you're drawn to the technical stuff and the interesting things around that, but you're not necessarily drawn to the business stuff. Um, so it's easy for us to just neglect that and not think about that. Um, most of us don't have any sort of MBA or master's of business administration, right? So um, to, to have knowledge from other people who are more ahead than I am would be awesome. And I have a little bit of insight, you know, having my business for a couple of years now. Um, but yeah, it's cool to, to hear, like Liberty mentioned, a resource. Um, there's local resources depending on where you live. And obviously there's there's local things that are um, independent to each person. And then there's like universal things that will apply to everybody. So just all things that I would love to dive into and, and talk about in this next hour. Nigel. I think you should ask yourself, why am I starting my own business? So I would go back a step and say, am I starting my own business uh, because I don't want to work for somebody? Uh, am I starting my own business because every time I work for somebody, it drives me nuts? You, whatever it is, you've got to go back and ask yourself the reason that you're starting this small business, hopefully growing to a big business. Because there are some things you are going to want to do and enjoy doing, and there are going to be things you don't want to do and don't enjoy doing and are going to have to do anyway. So, you know, uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, looking at acquiring uh, medium and small businesses, and it's very clear that the, the one of the strongest cases we have when we buy a small business is the owner says, well, I really enjoy doing this, but I hated doing that. And if you can do that for me, then, you know, we'd love to sell ourselves to you. And so I think you're, we're going to talk about a lot of things about legal registration. We're going to talk about taxes. We're going to talk about all sorts of things. If those things scare you and you don't want to do them, then you should think very carefully about creating a, a small business. The other thing I'll tell you is uh, the hardest thing about running a small business, and by a small business, this may be a one or two uh, person shop, um, when you're doing the work, you're not doing the demand generation. And, and that's really the hardest part because if, you do, if you're not careful, what happens is you get to the end of the job, you look about and the next job is not being lined up. And again, if you don't want to juggle those things, if you are not comfortable doing that, then you may find that becoming um, you know, a subcontractor or becoming a consultant or something else for somebody else is a better model. So make sure you're really bought into doing all the stuff you don't want to do. And Nigel, I just want to take a moment to uh, unpack that just a little bit more of what you shared of. So you started with saying, you know, figuring out your why and then also the idea of, well, what are you good at and what are you not good at? And one of the things that I've heard through the entrepreneurial journey is starting with the end in mind. So if you are because you mentioned that part of what your business is acquiring um, acquiring other businesses, do you find what are the the what do you find those businesses that are ready for an acquisition? What do you find they did it well at the beginning to help them to get to that place? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, partly what they do well is the thing that got them into a small business. So most you know, we do home automation stuff. So somebody's been working for somebody else or they've been doing, you know, they enjoy home automation stuff. So they go, well, I can start doing this for other people. So they're good at designing systems and they're good at installing systems. And they can create a nice job, a few hundred thousand dollars a year. And then they start getting bigger jobs. And worse, they start employing other people. And now you've got to think about all of those issues. You've got to think of you're paying taxes, you're paying, you know, insurance, you're going into other people's houses. This thing becomes very serious very fast. And there's a huge difference between a hobby and a business. Um, what you, when people are successful, what they've done is they've worked out what their skills are, they've worked out what they are good at, then they found a partner, their partner, or a business partner, or someone else who can fill in. And often what we see is that the leadership of these businesses is sort of two-headed. It's the technical installer head and it's the business head. And getting both of those heads, I mean, you may be lucky, you may be able to do both really well, but but typically they use different sides of the brain, if you believe that sort of stuff. And, and knowing what you can't do as you establish your businesses is just as important as knowing what you can do. Well said, well said. Mitchell? If you're getting ready to start a business, I would take that recording of what Nigel just said and play it over and over and over because nothing more true has ever been said about somebody that's in the creative business starting a business. Um, just because you're good as an editor or a creative person does not mean that you're going to be good at running that business. And you're probably not going to be good at running that business because you're going to do the things you like first, which is probably the editing, the production, the mixing, all of that stuff. And I can tell you from personal experience that uh, I was really good at uh, running a studio. I was really bad at managing the studio because it involved a lot of minutiae I wasn't really good at. So all these little things that are showing up here as the uh, the, the subject, the insurance, your, your attorney, your accountant, those are the things you generally don't like. Um, and if you're just lucky enough to uh, have good ones, they're going to advise you about how to keep that platform safe under you while you're conducting your business. Because if you mess up with the, uh, the internal revenue service, they can shut you down. Uh, there's no, no qualms about it. They can step in front of everybody and say, we're going to put a lien on your business and now you owe us and you can't conduct business in order to pay us. So those are just some of the things that happen. So uh, as a general rule, I would use this becoming successful is much easier than maintaining your success. And it, maintaining it means all that minutia that we're going to be talking about this hour. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, there's a, a small business accelerator group that I was lucky enough at our local college to be a part of for a number of years and getting to hear other business owners. And at the end of the day, we're, we're all the same. Some were restaurant owners, some were construction companies. Uh, it was interesting because we actually got to go tour their facilities. And so we went into a brewery and we'd see how the beer was made. And it was really cool. And some of the stuff that they talked about in the, um, uh, in the privately in, in the meetings, uh, we'd see them come to light six months later. Like the one guy wanted to put cans. So he was doing bottled beers, but then he wanted to do cans. And everybody was like, you're going to invest how much in a canner? And so we're doing the math. And so sometimes that's what it's about is like listening to the customer and having that passion to fulfill their need. Like I was up till one o'clock last night try, trying to get my setup all done. And I do it because I love it. You know, like there's passion there. And, and I got up at three 
still excited and pumped to go finish off the some of the stuff that I was putting together. So that drives you through, you know, these hard times because, yeah, you know, with, with the the whole uh, slowdown with COVID and lockdown and all that, um, if you don't have that passion, some of that stuff can just uh, grind you down and uh, you just you don't uh, you don't have the yeah pizzazz, I guess, to to keep keep it going. So uh, another thing is. Uh, just know your customer acquisition costs, where are they coming from and uh, how much is it costing? Because it's like we did a trade show and it cost 25,000 bucks. And when I looked at the leads list, we had a hundred leads and I was like, whoosh, that's a, that's a, a, an expensive trade show to attend. So you go, how, how many people, you know, walk by and saw uh, what you were showing and didn't get a badge scan, but knowing those numbers, it just starts to, you know, be math where you start to go, all right, how many of these do I have to get to, uh, you know, pay our employees, pay travel costs, pay for next year. Is this is this worthwhile? So a lot of it becomes uh, spreadsheets. Uh, one of the things that's helped me a lot is the local library. There's something called the first research industry data. So if you uh, go to your library and look up uh, first research, uh, you'll be able to find these uh, NAICS reports. And in these reports, you'll be able to see businesses um, that uh, hundreds of them that have submitted their uh, Dun & Bradstreet files. And these Dun & Bradstreet files contain, like, let's say a restaurant you want to start. It'll say between uh, 250000 to 500000 Here's what those businesses spent on their facilities, their location. Um, so now you have uh, a copy of their averaged PL and their balance sheet, and you can get in there and you can dig and you can see what you should be spending. So if you're looking at a certain piece of uh, real estate, you want to know price per square foot and what's common in that area. So if it's in a mall, are you going to have to pay extra, uh, you know, pieces of your percentage of uh, your revenues to that uh, mall? So there's there's lots of little hidden things in in starting a business. The best thing to do is talk to people, ask, and and then again go to your local library and talk to. There's usually a business person there that can actually walk you through. It's their job and it's free. So I'd recommend going to the local library. And I'd like to take this to another aspect of starting or building a business. Sometimes you might not know, you have an idea or as been said on the panel already, there's something that, well, I'm really good at this or I'm really good at that. Before even diving like head strong in and going all the way, um, possibly just even testing. And one of the ways that uh, last year I did an accelerator, well, a pre-accelerator program with Techstars, and they're one of the leading organizations across the globe to help you test your idea. And actually, if it's solid, then scaling and they actually do some investment. So we're the pre-accelerator part of things. And what that was able to help us do is we spent a lot of time on just tightening up, like, what is the actual idea? And, and going out and testing. So that being asking asking your target audience and figuring out, because a business, the idea behind a business is to generate revenue. And while you might think your audience is one, this audience, but who's the person that's actually going to pay you money? And whoever that person is or whoever you think that person is, not only building relationship, but spending time asking them open-ended questions so you can get as much data, as much information as possible to then inform, well, is what's the pain point that they have? And if we provided this type of service, 
that's probably not the greatest question, but asking them around their pain points and then finding out, well, if we add this kind of service, is that something that they would pay for? So when you're able to, and it's called like building out an MVP, a minimal viable product, that way you can give yourself a little bit of a run road to figure out, okay, I'm going to give myself 90 days to test out if I can get someone to agree to pay X number of dollars for this service. And when they do, and you go through that, and of course, making sure that you're able to deliver, (laughs) but when they do, then using that as an opportunity to do further discovery with them, further research with them, asking them if they have someone else that they can introduce you to, because what that helps you to do is, again, I'm speaking from the idea of if you have a concept that then you can really find out, is this something that could be viable in order for you to like build a business and make revenue around that. Because I know that our audience, we have all all facets, people from all parts of the spectrum. And some of you, it's, it's I have an idea, where do I go? And if you're able to, to test it before making that full commitment, and then a lot of the conversation that we're about to have will help you once you've validated your idea that, okay, yes, this is this is something that's doable, then we can take um, the following steps to, to get there. So, all right, looks like we see the questions piling up here. Mitchell, let's get started. All right. uh, First one in from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California, and here on our panel. uh, What does it look like to hire your first W-2 employee? Nigel. It's scary. And here's here's what I want you to be scared about. You are now in charge of somebody putting food on their table. You are now in charge of deciding whether those kids are going to go to college, whether they're going to have uh, Christmas or holiday gifts. And you've got to, as stupid as it may sound, you've really got to walk into it understanding that. Um, Be really clear why you are hiring this person, what you want them to do, and what success looks like. And, And my best advice is don't hire your best friend if you want to keep them as your best friend. I mean, I know that sounds really strange to people. It may or may not sound strange to people. Um, I have interviewed thousands of people. I've hired lots of people. I think my hit rate on good versus bad, and I think I'm pretty good at this, is 60-40. So I think there's almost, I get it wrong almost as often as I get it right. And so when you're hiring your first person, you have to accept you may hire the wrong person, not because you're not good at interviewing, but what you thought you needed and what you end up needing is different. And, and at some point, you may have to live with the implication of that. And the answer is not to hire another person, try to ignore the fact. You may need to let that person go. You need to ma- manage through that situation. So as I said, be really clear about the problem, as someone said earlier, what you want this person to do, what success looks like, how are you going to pay them? And then, and then go through a systematic process of reviews and cycles so you prepare yourself. Because uh, as hard as it is for them, I trust you, if you want to sleep at night, you got to get this right. Mitchell? I want to work for Nigel. Uh, the, uh, the toughest lesson you learn when you hire people is expecting them to be as dedicated to your job or your business as you are. And this is a nasty little uh, thing that will come up and bite you right where you don't expect it to. Because when you expect somebody to work beyond 
uh, the confines of the job and the uh, description of what their job duties are. Um, and they say, no, it's going to be a, a, t- a, mo- a tough moment for you to deal with. Or if you, gosh, you know, it's tough to do it, but if you have to let them go. I remember uh, running a business uh, for three years, two of which were very successful, one was not. And when I had to let somebody go, uh, and I figured that they would understand. I mean, business wasn't good. I had to cut my expenses. Uh, they said, um, well, I hold you personally responsible for uh, driving this business right into the ground. And it was very hard pill to swallow. And my instant retort was, well, I guess I should have shut it down a year ago when I, when I had a chance. But I kept it going to help all of us out. Um, once again, uh, didn't get much sympathy on that one. And uh, that's the way it is when you are an employer. Next question. Next question coming in from Raj Shandil in Los Angeles, California. Favorite, Excel, Aces, FileMaker, or Numbers? Nigel? Uh, The favorite one is the one I know. So I'm uh, busy enough that I'm not going to learn a tool because uh, someone tells me it's better. I'm going to use the tool I know. But I, I wanted to make another point here as well. There's a reason why so many businesses use QuickBooks. And it might look expensive to you, and it might look like a bunch of, I don't know, I need all of that. But there's a reason people use tools and pay for tools. Uh, And those who try and assemble those things on their own and do without those tools will start putting effort into doing what somebody else is doing for you. And I think Guy made a really smart suggestion. Work out what the sort of businesses like yours spend on things. And there's a reason they spend 5% or whatever it is on overheads or software or IT. It's because that's the best use of time. So pick the tool, you know, but don't forget professional tools do professional jobs. John? This is a religious question you're asking here. Uh, I I use all of them. I use Excel for certain things, and I use Numbers for certain things, and I use Google Docs for certain things. If the if the sheet needs to be shared, but Excel I've been using for thirty years more, actually. Um, and I I'm I use Airtable now for easy database stuff instead of FileMaker, and then for the heavy duty stuff we use Postgres. So as far as scalability goes, but I have all of those tools in my toolbox. I use the appropriate one when needed. Did you say Postgres? That's a new one. I haven't heard that one. Postgres SQL. It's SQL. Okay. Okay. And Guy? Yeah, we use a, a lot of Excel. The The crazy thing is watching somebody who's a master at it. I mean, we have people on staff that zoom through that stuff and then I'll say, can you make it do this? And they're just like, <laughs> like a Gatling gun. It's it's insane when you have somebody that's that good. Uh, for our ERP, we use uh, NetSuite and that's able to generate these uh, reports where we can then kick them into Excel. I myself wind up using a lot of Google Sheets just because it's easy to then share them and have other people work on them at the same time. We also use something called Basecamp. Um, that helps with some internal stuff, but those are the tools that we use. Mitchell? QuickBooks have for quite some time. Uh, Nigel's right. Yeah, so QuickBooks, uh, both for the studio and for Chosen Media, and then also Google Sheets and Asana is our Asana and Basecamp, just depending on the, the project size. Next question. Next question is for Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California. How do you protect yourself legally? Mitchell? I'm glad you called on me. I live in Wilmington, Delaware. Delaware has so many great rules and regulations and protections for corporations. 
So um, if you want to do the first step, make yourself a Delaware corporation and enjoy the protection it provides for you. Guy? Yeah, if you can bring somebody on the team that knows HR, that's been there, done that. We have a general manager that's on staff that, uh, man, I didn't realize that the amount that you can save on safety, like we we actually have safety meetings, uh, I think they're every month, but man, the the fact that we haven't had anybody get hurt, we have 17 employees currently, we've been as high as 30, we haven't had any major uh, you know, there might be like somebody gets a pinched finger off of a, a pallet or something like that. But uh, he said it, at the former place that he worked when he first went in, there was people riding the pallet jacks through the warehouse and hurting themselves, you know, just doing crazy stuff. And so sometimes, you know, there's people that like to have fun, but it's like have fun safely and not endanger others because uh, it's very easy to get hurt, especially, you know, in different, different sites. Things that we work with are heavy. Uh, my auto pole collapsed the other day. I mean, I wouldn't have done what I did at the office, what I did here. I was supposed to have that light up temporarily. Uh, I fell in love with it. And the next thing I know, you know, it's three, three months later or so, and it's crashing down. So just be careful and be aware, but hiring other people that can look that, that like to, cross the T's and dot the I's. So there's like Nigel was saying, different brains. There's some that are more analytical and they 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 thrive on that kind of thing where they they like data. They like to look at those nuances. They like the rules. And then there's people like me that are like, how can we, you know, uh be more creative? How can we uh skirt around that if we have to? Let's get it done. You know, so there's people that like to push and are drivers and there's people that are like, hold on, slow down. What about this? And you got to be careful. So having good HR on staff or hiring an outside agency that can uh, fulfill those roles. So we have, like Nigel was saying, we have a, a line item that's professional services. So we hire out. We just, we don't have to keep those people inside. So we we have a CFO to go. You know, there's d- different services that you can utilize. We've uh, used HR firms in the past. We've had, we've had been big enough to actually have a dedicated HR person on staff. And that was a wild ride too. So, I mean, but nothing's, nothing's perfect, but it is good to, to get around like-minded business owners too. If you can't find a small business group in your area and meet with people, that has been a, a godsend to me because other people go through these same kind of hiring. And when I heard what goes on in a restaurant, hiring a dishwasher and chefs, oh man, I was like loving my life. When you hear other people's problems, you'd be thankful for your own. I know I'd be interested in if there was a particular part of like protecting yourself legally, because that is like my Mickey answers. It depends. Um, First, we have a we have a lawyer. So anything, any contracts or anything that we go into or any questions, we can just pick up the phone and call. Also, I'm a part of um, Atlanta Tech Village and there are um, there's help and resources that are available there and through mentors and advisors that we can um ask questions and get things vetted through, um, those being the the two primary ways. And I just recently joined another business group where then we are, we've been sharing resources. So those are the the three ways um, that I have been able to protect ourselves. John? Okay. So it's a couple of things. Jason said it best. You want to incorporate, you don't want a single person LLC because that's not a real company. Um, so you have a multi-person LLC or a corporation that gives you the level of protection there. Uh, but do the right thing. I've been in business 30 years. I've never sued anybody and I've never been sued. So I continue to, to have high integrity and do the right thing in life. And I've been protected. 
And an LLC, yes, is definitely a business. Um, we can define companies and corporations and all of that, but under the banner of business, an LLC does count. Go ahead, Noah. Yeah, I, I did actually um, file for an LLC. I have, I've had one for a little bit now, and I, I just kind of that spurred the thought of other questions. And um, I'm using LegalZoom as my um, in infrastructure and, and contracts and stuff there, but I'm, I'm sure there's other things as the panel discussed that can help, you know, elevate that and take that to a new level. But all, all things that I feel like I need to go deeper into that, down that rabbit hole for sure. And Mitchell. Um, here's a situation that I had. Um, it's a case in point uh, where uh, you need an LLC to protect you, but there's also some things that can grab you in the process. I, I had a great insurance policy for my camera equipment, and I had rented it out to a very large corporation based here in Delaware. It starts with D. We'll go any further. And uh, they broke the camera. Uh, the camera fell off their tripod, landed on the lens, crushed the, all the circuit boards into it. And uh, they said, well, it's your problem. And I said, no, it's your problem because you signed uh, a, a, a legal document when you rented it that says it's your responsibility. Our insurance uh, is going to retaliate. So our, you know, about three or four months went by and um, I read in the, in the newspaper, my company suing the Big D Corporation. I'm like, what? <laughs> Because I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Well, when I had the insurance policy, the insurance companies have the right to to sue on your behalf. So I lost a very big client because the small print got me. I guess a lawyer should have looked at it on the insurance policy. Luckily, I had the protection of an LLC to keep anybody coming back on me. But uh, that was a very expensive lesson. Reading the fine print. Next question from Raj Shandil in uh, Los Angeles. Is there a way to automate the business monthly paperwork, such as receipts, taxes, and reports? I find myself doing a lot of repeat busy work. I may have to change my title to business manager. One would be having a business manager that is always helpful. But as was mentioned before, using programs like QuickBook, there's still some element of you, QuickBooks, there's still an element of you having to submit or whether it be um, taking photos of your receipts so that they are uploaded. So not fully automated, but there are some tools and systems that can help you through that process outside of actually having a dedicated person either on staff or a VA and EA or someone like that who's dedicated to doing that for you. Mitchell? Uh, Raj, I use uh, QuickBooks. Uh, before there was QuickBooks, believe it or not, I had a business. And here's a quick story again. Uh, sometimes you can learn something from them. Um, I had a studio and I loved running the studio in the uh, uh, sitting behind the console, doing the editing and the recording and the production and the creative. And then I hired somebody to do that job to help me cover much more clientele that I had coming in. And I ended up spending more and more time at the front desk doing exactly the work that you're referring to. And eventually I, that's all I did. And here's a couple of things that happened. One is that the person that was uh, running the studio was pretty good but he wasn't as good as I was at doing it. So the clients were like, what's going on here? And then the other part was I was really bad at running the business and I didn't enjoy myself. So I was a very sad person that had created a circumstance that I was unhappy with and I had full control, but no, it didn't work out that way. 
especially you make a good point there, Mitchell, of just being able to the time that it takes you to work on the business and actually working in the business. So hopefully that question comes around again, because I find that in the last year that, yes, I've still been hands on in the business, but that is also causing. So, you know, I think it was Nigel who shared in the beginning, the demand generation, the sales aspect of things and needing to step more into that executive role and that sales role and like building that that capacity underneath so that there are others that are able to run the business, much like Alex is doing here with office hours as the visionary, but there's, he could only do so much and hold on to so much of it for so long in order to really see the, see office hours scale and then bringing people in. So um, Rajan, hopefully I said that correctly, that um, hopefully that helps in seeing if there's a way that you can either automate that or hand that off. I think that's one of the things when it comes to being a business owner is learning how to delegate and learning how to delegate quickly so that you're not behind the eight ball. Next question. Uh, from Noah Sargent in Fullerton, California, and you're on our panel. Um, how do you set up healthcare, insurance, and payroll? Nigel? Okay, so those are three very different things. So let's let's go in reverse. Uh, payroll, find someone, depending how big you are, you can do it through QuickBooks, you can do it through ADP or somewhere like that. Insurance, uh, I mean, you need to find yourself a broker. I, I think uh, uh, we've talked a lot about, guys talked a lot about local teams, local groups that you get to know, find out who the local people are. Um, I will tell you that the most important thing you'll do is find your way into a buyer's group of some sort. Now, we're probably all in a buyer's group. We just call it Costco, uh, where you're getting some benefit through bulk. But as you get bigger, you'll get into a buying group. And as you get into a buying group, you start to not only find out what the uh, the best people to work with is, you get some advantages. Uh, at some point, probably five employees, you should think about a PEO, a professional employers organization. And uh, again, you're going to be shocked at how much this is going to cost you to set up, and then it will get cheaper in second and third year, but it will take a huge amount of pain away from you. ADP does lots of this stuff. Insperity does lots of this stuff. And they not only act as someone who will sort out your HR and your payroll for you, they will drag you into the ability to get discounts and other access to services. And again, you're trying to run your business. You're trying to set up processes and systems. You're not actually trying to do every element. And so getting professional services organizations like PEOs can make a significant difference to your execution capability. And John. The gentleman from Austin articulated quite well. Thank you. Next question. From Paul Buchan in Columbus, Ohio, asking, when first starting, what are the first things you should get? LLC, bank account, domain, P.O. box, etc. Jason. All right. Um, you probably want a domain first because without a domain, you aren't going to know what to call your LLC. Um, as far as the order, it's basically the way that I, I said it at the very top of the hour um, for the rest of it. Um, you get an LLC first 
And um, from there, you get an EIN from the IRS, and you need the EIN from the IRS. Boy, this is since this is like Good Morning Vietnam. Since the VP is such a VIP, shouldn't the VPs PCB on CTV? Um, no, but uh, since you once you get an EIN from the IRS, you take that and your articles of organization or incorporation, depending upon um, how you how you choose to incorporate. And um, you take those to your bank and you say, hi, I'd like a corporate bank account. The EIN is a social security number for the business. So, so think of it that way. Um, that's, yeah, that's the long and the short of it. Mitchell? All good advice. I'm going to toss one more in there. A business plan. you got to decide what kind of a business you're building and what kind of market there is for it. Try to put your emotions aside and you're really good at what you do and you're having a lot of fun. But there has to be a business for it out there. And um, the domain, I agree with Jason 100%. Uh, when we were sitting around trying to figure out what to call my company, um, I just happened to have an ace in the hole, as it were. And it was um, secretagency.com. It was the name I was sitting on for a long time. Finally, it came along. I said, ah, there's the name for the company. And I had that way, way before any of the other stuff had to be done. I'll add to to Mitchell and Jason. So once you, yes, get the domain and have that name, get your handles because it would be horrible to get and your social media handles could be horrible to get the name, get all of that work done and then find out someone else um, goes ahead and grabs that. I'll speak to, cause I know there's, um, there's some, folks that are in, in Canada to the Canadian side of things actually went through a lawyer for them to put together our articles. Um, you've got to get a nun's number. I think that's how you pronounce it as an acronym of just making sure that no one else out there has that name. And then the lawyer typed up all the documentation, got that squared away. I say it took like a month or two um, to pull all of that together because of the search. And then from there, getting the business account and then you know, we're off to the races and Noah. Yeah. I love all this great info. Um, so I'll just speak from my perspective and I'm probably did things out of order too a little bit, but I named my company based off of the URL that was open. And so corporate streams is my company. Um, and then I also got a trademark for that within, um, the realm of what I do. Um, and then I got a local business license, like to, uh, to work in California. Um, and then eventually I got the bank account LLC and that kind of stuff as well. Um, I've yet to get a PO box, but that's probably a good idea to, to add in as well. And then obviously all the, all the other things we've talked about on the show thus far. John, this is great info and, and state of Nevada is easy. Um, cause you can go on the secretary of site. I'm sure you could do the same thing in a lot of other states. You go on their site secretary of state and you can form your llc and pay for it in vegas right now it's about 450 dollars to form your llc um and uh and that that's your first step but but yes getting your trademark uh, and and then the, the secretary of state's office will tell you whether or not that name is being used and then trademark's always good trademark is two fifty two hundred fifty dollars per mark and classification uh, but you can get this relatively done quickly these days because of the internet. Jason? Um, okay. So a word mark and a trademark are the same. I'm going to get a little bit lawyery here um, in that one is a super category of the other. All word marks are trademarks, but not all trademarks are word marks. I think I didn't just get my wires crossed. So a word mark is simply a phrase. Um a trademark is any sort of font, logo, design, color, you know, combination of things that, uh, you know, you would associate with a brand. 
And as um, as far as paying for it, I I paid for the first one, and then after that, I realized it was so easy that you, you really you really can file the for them yourself. They they do not. You, do, you shouldn't have to hire a lawyer, and maybe Nigel will will tell me why that's a terrible idea. But oh, good, he's gone. Okay, yes, I'm in the clear. <laughs> You're not alone. I've done two trademarks and and did them on my own, and we were all good. However, would I do that again? Now it's based on you, you know, time and using your time wisely. If that makes sense, hiring a lawyer is always um, a great thing to do. And I wanted to go back to the chat here. Um, John also adds, I guess if we were to add this checklist of starting a business, John says product market fit, a list of potential customers. And then Lenny says, getting that Google listing and going back to my Nigel's point about the business plan, because that might be intimidating and just so that you don't take too long in, in pulling the trigger and getting your business started. There's also things like the business model canvas, which in the startup world is just this one sheet that you put all of those things, a lot of what has been discussed, specifically more so to John in the chat, where you put, okay, here are the customers, here are all of the things that we'll need. And like just getting that snapshot of your business and then getting that out of your head immediately will then enable you to succinctly write that business plan. And knowing that business plans vary, there are some that are pages and pages long. There are some that are only a few pages long. When you're getting started, the minimal viable product, getting those numbers out and getting them down so you can see what it will take to operate your business being some of the most important parts of the business plan. And then it's not a one and done thing. It is something that is constantly evolving. So get it as far enough as you can so that you can get to actually making money, which is why you have a business in the first place. Jason. Liberty, um, in business school, the things that you're describing to me were, were taught as feasibility analysis, and it's a precursor to a business plan. It's, is it worth going through the exercise of doing a business plan? You know, if if I charge this, you know, I, I loved Guy's idea of, of um, uh, going to a library. I did it um, at the time at a university library, but the resources are largely the same. It is staggering what you can get from a library. And, you know, based on your zip code, that's the other thing that I don't think a guy alluded to, but didn't mention specifically, the market um, analysis that you're going to get truly is local. And like that matters quite a bit. So um, feasibility analysis is basically if I charge X dollars in this business category, in this zip code, is it feasible that I might be able to make money the way that I think I can? Mitchell? Yeah, that uh, that business plan, I can't overestimate it. And people are chiming in and saying things about it. And it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I had a startup uh, with a friend uh, in 1998, and we were a uh, uh, LLC and creating that business plan was probably the single biggest thing we did. It took the most amount of time to create the deck. We put lots of time and effort into it because we were also shopping the uh, the company out to other people. So I can't emphasize enough how important that is to be able to do that. The other thing that's tough, especially uh, if you're putting money out to do these things, is that I tell everybody that, uh, that I know that are starting up businesses that uh, starting a business is like taking a poison pill. You've got a limited amount of time to live, 
or for life, and you're going to you're going to shut down if you don't solve your problems before that pill has an effect on you. So spend every dollar you have like it's the last one you're going to have. Um, it's a it's a tough reality of the business, but that plan will help you keep to that uh, to that score. Nigel. I just want to make Jason happy that I'm okay with you doing your own trademarks. Um, I think if you are going to function internationally, I would be a bit more careful. I would not do my own patents. Um, and I think completely mostly, agree. Yeah, I think both is. I also wanted to double down on the on the canvas thing. Um, I, I spent some time in my life doing uh, what I called value proposition workshops with small businesses where I would sit down with the ownership and really work out what they thought their value was, their value proposition to the market and uh, as a business owner was. And I found that mostly people couldn't articulate it successfully. And when they can't articulate where their differentials what their value is to the market, they tend to set up their businesses poorly. And I think the canvas is a great tool, maybe even worth uh, some more time on as a tool to help you work out what your value proposition is. And Noah? Yeah, I think that um, framing of how you build your business is huge. I, I was just reflecting on some of the documents I started with and just I had um, an outline here of like internal positioning and a, a statement around what that looks like or um, only in a statement like what makes my business unique or the manifesto of like the purpose and intent or mission statement or core values or value propositions those were all like things I wrote out and probably spent a good month or two like flushing out and thinking about from uh, a big picture perspective that really helped kind of inform how I was going to go about those other steps in the rest of the business. Next question. And it's a question from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. Is hiring private contractors for services, for example, uh, camera work, editing, et cetera, advantageous over hiring employees? Jason? Oh, boy. Um, I feel like a barbershop quartet. Like, it just depends. It, truly, it does. Uh, it, it depends so heavily on your market segment. For the last 13, nearly 14 years, I've been a, a single man organization and it is a stupefying amount of work. I need to emphasize it is, it is a lot of work. Um, it's not something you do by accident and it's not something you do unless you are completely and totally committed to it. But, um, uh, you know, of course I, I have had to hire outside contractors, but it's on a case by case basis and, you know, in, in a temporary time frame, usually for a project. So the, the answer is it depends, but you really can be the only person. It's just really hard. Mitchell? Um, yeah, I, I mean, this business is so crazy and it, it, like it, like you say, it depends. Um, if it's like, if you have a steady clientele and work coming in, it probably makes sense to bring in an employee. So something you can depend on, but my business is so spotty and, uh, unexpected that I have to do uh, subcontracting, uh, to get things done. And I like it because it's a direct cost of sales. I don't have to carry people, uh, when, when things aren't going on. Um, the other thing is be careful uh, about subcontractors. Some states have very specific rules about uh, work for hire and things like that and the legal aspects um, and the way you uh, work with them and interact with them, particularly in California in the film industry. Noah? 
Yeah, and that's something that I need to follow up and, and get deeper into because I know, especially the Uber case and Lyft case that happened a couple of years ago, basically changed the game in California and other places. But so speaking from my perspective, and I don't know if this was the right way of going about things, but basically most of my team are freelancers that I hire on a gig by gig or project by project case. What I'm moving towards is trying to get my um, biggest clients to convert to long-term contracts. So instead of having like a one-off or one gig every couple months or what have you, we think about the whole year and we basically turn that into a 12-month contract and over time make it a more steady income, but also that would allow me to hire my first W-2 and other employees, right, to fill out that. So moving from the short-term thinking to more of a long-term thinking as far as hiring the team and the process and what we do. John? Yeah, the guys nailed it. It's the states, it's the states by states issue. California is super tough. And uh, we know people here that have gotten audited because of the contractors that they've hired, especially in, in our industry. So you have to you have to go and check out your state uh, laws. Yes, plus one on that. And just making sure that you are looking at your state regulations, because I had I mentioned the resource of having the advisors at Atlanta Tech Village and in speaking to an HR person there and talking about some of our plans, expansion plans. When we brought up the idea of contractors, she was like, be careful, red flag, because if you have someone who is and this is in the state of Georgia, but if you have someone who is working as a someone who is full-time, let's just being careful of those regulatory things, project by project, that's okay. But there, there's a, a very fine line there. So with all of the wonderful advice that we are giving here, definitely speaking to the business agency in your state and looking up that information. Next question. And it's from Chad Lafarge in Columbia, Columbia, Missouri. Are there canned organizational and legal docs that can be trusted, or do I need a legal team? John? Uh, just wait a little bit. OpenAI is working on this, so they'll have it all solved here shortly. Next question. From Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. Freelance versus self-employment, pros and cons, sole proprietor or LLC or corporation? Mitchell? Um, I'm going to just answer a little bit of that because I can't uh, do all of that because my brain isn't big enough. But um, I go to my accountant for all of these things. So they all have kind of tax implications that uh, that affect you in all of those particular cases. So accountant is a good place to start. Very true. Jason? I'm going to answer this one the way that I should. Talk to an accountant. Yes. The accountant, I recall, I think it was when I first started. So in 2008 and not realizing because I was doing my taxes on my own. So plus a thousand on the accountant and having someone who can guide you on how you can set up those structures. Because uh, when I moved states, then it actually like bit me in the butt the way that I had things set up. So you definitely want to speak to an accountant that can help in that. And that's like the biggest, the biggest pro when it comes to, to this question. Next question. It's from Talalik uh, Lopez Waterman and the Catskills right now in New York. Uh, for California businesses, can you hire contractors? Can you be hired as a contractor? And after the change in laws a few years back. Noah? My understanding is post the laws that changed a few years back, the Uber Lyft case, um, 
you basic it makes it really really hard in California to hire contractors. So I am currently doing it wrong myself. So I need to convert to the new system and figure that out. So that's my current research right now is to to go through that. And Mitchell, I agree. Uh, Noah's right on target. Tlaloc, I'd like to add one more little thing to that list: interns. It's a tough issue. Be careful. And for those of you, what is it with the, because it's come up a couple of times in the conversation of like California, what is the law that is, that has people saying, well, be careful, California. Noah? Yeah. So basically Lyft and Uber driver drivers, um, there was a, a lawsuit that happened where, um, you know, they're debating whether these folks were considered full-time employees or have any sort of benefits and that kind of stuff. And so within California, the the law basically said that um, Uber and Lyft have to classify those drivers as employees. Um, and so that classification also affected other small businesses within California. Um, and so it was, it was kind of a bigger thing. And um, there's politics involved, whether they thought um, that was okay or not to do for, for other things. But so basically um, for you as a contractor, um, I don't want to over, overstate what I know here, but basically my understanding is um, you can no longer um, be a contractor without having some sort of um, company behind it, like um, because of the tax implications. Nigel? So let, let again, I'm not an attorney, so let's just frame it. Um, the, the challenge comes out of when people hired subcontractors or, or consultants or people and then kept them for like a couple of years, it was really hard to differentiate between what was a sub, what was a contractor, and what was an employee. And so some of that all collapsed in in California. And and having been there for a couple of years, uh, they said, well, then they're really the same as employees. Then it, it got more complicated than after that. But I think if you're going to work in California, um, you can use contractors, but hire them from a contract firm. Don't hire them as 1099 directly onto you. And don't hire people you expect to keep for multiple years. Hire people to do specific jobs. Um, but again, a consultant attorney. Next question. From Juan C. Robles in Mexico City, Mexico. What is the best time to contract and hire external help? Nigel? Okay, so the, the silly answer is the day after you need it, not the day before, because uh, you should never pay for anything before you need it. The right answer, I suspect, is to ask about the value. And it, it, that value might be your time, it might be your money, it might be your legal exposure. If the value of that person is higher than doing it yourself, then that's a good time to bring somebody in however you do it. If, however, the cost of that person is greater than the time it would take you to do yourself, and Jason's example of, uh, you know, doing a, a trademark, for instance, no point paying 500 bucks an hour for an attorney if you can do that uh, for less money. So think about the value and when it switches to costing you more. And this is where, as Mitchell said, and as we discussed a little bit earlier of the, the business plan and having that in place where you can think through those milestones and those benchmarks that you hit, whether it be a financial aspect of it or whether it be a capacity. So when we have X number of jobs in the pipeline or said types of clients, we will need 
X, Y, Z. Um, I remember last year having a, a project with an agency in DC and the capacity, we didn't have all the capacity. So we had to then, in order to make sure that we didn't drop any of the balls, then it was, okay, a project manager. So now we have a blueprint for when we take on this type of client that already having that in the pipeline or a Rolodex of certain kinds of jobs to help you through. So again, that's where the the business plan, and even if it's not the full business plan, if you are planning quarterly and just looking out at the next 12 weeks, 90 days of what you need, that will save you so much heartache. And plusing one on what Nigel shared of, you know, having someone, what is your time worth? Are you, is it, are you more valuable to your business by going out and meetings and having calls and building relationships and what it would cost to pay someone to do the editing while you're doing that so you can keep your pipeline full? Those are the things that you want to think through as you go through that process. Next question. From John Foltz in Sealings Grove, Pennsylvania. John has a tip. When you first start Consult with a good accountant and a good lawyer to get your system set up. And I would add that is also just um, the SBA. Again, this is for U.S. based, but the SBA, the Small Business Administration, they have uh, a, a huge volunteer staff. So those are ex-CEOs, ex-accountants. So if it is something that could be cost protective, cost prohibitive for you to go into those organizations because they're designed to help businesses scale. And because when a business does well, that enables them to then hire and it goes back into this whole economic development um, pipeline. So there are resources out there um, to help you. And yes, having systems and something that's actually increased in what I've noticed in COVID are things like business manager. So if you have budget for someone who can come in and help setting up those systems, and even if it's on a project basis or to get you to that next milestone, that that is invaluable to your bottom line. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, we talk about complying with safety regulation X, but how do you build a culture of safety within your business? Oh, that is a, well, safety, and I'm glad that you raised your hand, Guy, because I'm like, yeah, you just shared about that. Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, I'm not the one who built this. It was from a uh, gentleman that came from uh, another um, another retailer. The The thing that I, I see them doing, though, is they have these meetings and we we pay for a lunch, so they all get together and they chat about things that they've seen, and then they develop an action plan as to what items uh, to hit first. So one would be, um, we had some items that some boxes that kept getting pushed over uh, the walkway. Uh, so they, they bought this special tape. Um, it's probably from Uline or somewhere and they marked off walkways. So there's clear walkways and it's just something simple, but not having a tripod leg sticking out over that line, you know, it can make a difference when somebody's trying to push a cart through there and all of a sudden they hit that tripod and you know something goes goes down so it's it's it is you know getting a team together and we, on our uh, crew we rotate them out so they it's not always the same people it gets rotated but there is a leader that that uh, leads the discussion but it it's a uh, it's a culture of letting people know that for every dollar you spend uh, i'd have to look up the exact ratio but it more than pays for itself over time so 
if you don't have to pay out, uh, you know, for somebody getting hurt, um, you know, we have insurances, but that still doesn't count for the time. And, you know, you really just don't want to have that on your conscience that you, you know, got somebody really hurt or killed, you know, so it, it's uh, letting people know what's at stake and then rewarding them for coming up with the ideas that uh, prevent it. Nigel? What you inspect, they will respect. If you don't care and you are seen not to care, nobody else will care. If you uh, care and you inspect and you give time, as you know, Guy has said to these things, then other people will start to respect it too. Next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael. What sort of resources can be helpful for those with disabilities, autism, spectrum, and all the rest in marketing their skills? I don't know if there are necessarily, well, uh, there are probably resources dedicated to those on the spectrum, but I, I cannot overemphasize the access to these government programs and government agencies that are designed to help help the community and help people to scale, grow, sorry, start, grow, and you know, exit exit their business. And when you think of it from that, even that marketing aspect, there are so many schools even that have, and when I say schools, colleges and universities that have programs. So I would say that could be a helpful resource as well. And I'll ask the expert here, Harshid, to chime in. Sure, so where I would begin, let's say in my world of vision impairment, uh, state agencies usually are a great place. So out here in Florida, we have Division of Blind Services that uh, serves the whole state. And each uh, county has its own office, perhaps, or each region. So Orlando might have its little region that uh, serves three counties. Then we have office here in Daytona. There's another one up in Jacksonville, an hour away from here. But what to give that example is you might not know what resources they might offer to you and that might just get you started. If it's education, then you would go to th through an education path. Um, the other pathway is vocational rehab. And with vocational rehab, you have other state agency or other funding. So that's totally a separate program that is able to either help you get employed for, you know, what have you, whatever purposes that you might uh, need. And the... Other resources that I would say that states can offer in many um, in many different aspects out here, at least for United States and potentially Canada, is you get to pick kind of your, I guess, your level of if you want education. So if you're trying to get through master's courses and stuff, you could still go ahead and have a state agency help you along with that and potentially pay for that degree so you know you do have opportunity to educate yourself but then in the sense of marketing i still feel that we have a little disconnect at times in between because we might have the skill set but how do you portray to somebody to say hey well I have a little bit of idea what a microphone is and the interfaces and the camera and I can make your picture look better than, you know, picture number B, which might be their picture that might not be as great. So it's it's self-marketing. I think that really uh, can be a big help for everybody. And then, you know, just to kind of wrap it all up is it's any any person that has any kind of ability or disability is just one and the same as anybody else. We all want 
breakfast, lunch, dinner, because we get hungry and that we should feed our bodies. So, you know, we all kind of go through the same processes. We need sleep. We need to put in work. And uh, we should just kind of think in that realm. And if we could feed to that purpose, then, you know, life's good. And just pulling in, thank you, Laura, for sharing and sharing below. So job accommodation network. So if you go to askjan.org, there should be some resources to help on your journey there. And that's it. That's a wrap. We are at just a minute past the hour. Thank you so much, producers, for all of your wonderful questions. And of course, to our panelists for your insights, your stories, and just being here to help support the community and to our back end team for whom without which we would not be here with you each and every day. Thank you so much. And to see the schedule for the week, you want to head over to officehours.global. Tomorrow, we've got Reality Scan. Uh, it's a 3D scanning app. So we're going to look into that. And then on Wednesday, Faith and Polarity. Are your wires getting crossed? So we'll talk all things wires on Wednesday. So again, head over to officehours.global. And we'll see everyone in After Hours. Have a good one. Okay. I got to go watch Good Morning Vietnam again. And now everyone, I wish we could do some kind of to see who's inspired to start a business now as a result of this conversation. Thank you, God. We are just you and I whispering. So I would love.